Welcome to Men Talk, the podcast that takes a deep dive into the world of miscarriage, infertility, infant loss, and stillbirth. Hosted by Daniel Landau, founder of menshelpline.org, we'll be sitting down every week with real guys to discuss their stories, struggles, and triumphs. So grab a drink, sit tight, and let's talk. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Men Talk, where men talk about miscarriage, infant loss, stillbirth, and infertility. I'm very excited to have our guest this week, Aaron Guvea, who is the author of an exciting book called Men and Miscarriage, A Dad's Guide to Grief, Relationships, and Healing After Loss. It is a must-read for any dad or any father who has, or potential father who has suffered a miscarriage, as men are often, unfortunately, the silent sufferer. So Aaron, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you. Yeah, appreciate it. Appreciate being here. So Aaron, if you could just, you know, introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your background, kind of, you know, why you've decided to write the book and a little bit, you know, about the book and we'll we'll go from there. Yeah, so, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a dad of three boys, um, been married for 16 years. I'm out in Massachusetts, a little south of Boston. Um, and like a lot of people, we had a very rough road, um, kind of at all points, um, you know, a miscarriage or two before we had our first and then a lot of trouble, hence the five and a half year gap between our first and our second. Um, and then, you know, a couple after that, I think we had, you know, I have three healthy children, which is, you know, I'm eternally grateful for, but my wife was pregnant, I think eight times in nine years. So, you know, we kind of went through it all. We went through the infertility, male infertility. Um, we did IVF to get our second. And it was, um, it was pretty awful. You know, I can't really sugarcoat it. Pretty awful, a lot of the parts of it. And, um, you know, all throughout that, I mean, people are, are rightly and justifiably concerned about, uh, you know, always asking me, how's your wife? How's she doing? And, and of course, you know, you would ask that question, but no one ever asked, you know, no, no one ever asked me really how, you know, how are you doing? And that, that really kind of solidified in me. Oh yeah. You know, I, I definitely, I definitely have no right to be upset right now. I have no, I, they're not asking me how I am. So it doesn't matter. And, you know, of course it does matter. It matters a lot. I didn't know that at the time it took a lot of, you know, a lot of uh, reflection after the fact, but um, when I got my, when I wrote my first book, which was Raising Boys to Be Good Men um, in 2020, I submitted that. And then they said, do you have an idea for a second book? And I said, well, I said, it's really kind of out there. You know, it's a book about men in miscarriage, which, you know, I can't imagine writing that book. And they said, and my publisher thankfully said, hey, you know what? That's great. I, you know, go and go and do that. And so I wrote it with my wife, um, and who's not a writer. So that was a, that was an interesting process, but we, we wrote it together and we just kind of relived everything. And we, we interspersed in between our own narrative. We interviewed um, a total of nine people for the book, uh, mostly men, but a couple of women too, who were really brave and shared their stories with us from all walks of life, all backgrounds, um, you know, even outside of the country. And it just painted a picture of kind of exactly what I hypothesized at the start, which was a lot of men out there suffering in silence because they don't think that they're allowed to suffer or grieve or feel terrible. And, 
you know, I knew this book wasn't going to have a huge audience, but I'm really hoping that the audience that needs it finds it because it, it might be, it might be small, but it's bigger than everyone thinks. And I think it's an important subject to drag out into the light. Yeah, it, it really, really is. And I'm really, really glad you wrote the book because it is true that men have been suffering in silence and that it's not really talked about, which really it should be. How did you, how did you find those nine men that, that, that you interviewed? How did you connect with them? Where, where did you find them? Um, thankfully, you know, I've been, I've been a dad blogger, uh, since 2007. So I've been kind of at the parenting writing game a while. And so thankfully my network's built up with, uh, just a ton of exceptional parents, moms and dads. And I really just leaned on my network. I put it out there and said, here's my idea for this book. Here's what we're doing. And, you know, a funny thing happened, uh, really not funny, but I, I, there was a huge, you know, outpouring of support, like, oh yeah, you definitely write that book. That's an amazing idea. You got to do it. I'll talk to you. And, you know, our schedule was filled up with a, with a ton of people to talk to. And one thing we noticed was that kind of one by one, when it came time for that zoom interview or that phone call, it was, oh, you know, geez, I'm sorry, I can't do it. Oh, you know, I had something come up. And I'm sure that people did have stuff come up. Everyone's busy and it was a pandemic. But I have to believe that some of it was just getting ready to relive all that stuff was just very, very tough. Because I'll tell you, it was very tough writing this book and rehashing everything that I felt, every you know, things I was in counseling over and still am in counseling over, frankly, so I, I imagine that, you know, I was really hoping we'd have 50, you know, 60 people maybe, because that's what was ultimately, that's the number that we started with. And a definite trend was like, oh, you know, you know what, maybe, uh, maybe someone else can talk about this. And I don't blame them. It's a lot to ask people to, to talk about one of the toughest times that they've gone through. Uh, but it just made me appreciate the, the nine people who did open up to us uh, even more because that was Really, you know, I, I really feel honored that they trusted me with uh, such a sensitive story. And I just, I hope we did them justice. Yes, I'm, it's definitely true that um, it is really difficult for, for some people to rehash it. But at the end of the day, we know that these type of things, whether you're going through IVF and suffering and miscarriage, the whole journey to rehash is difficult, but at the same time, it will always come out, whether it's a birthday, whether it's, you know, a due date, whether it's sibling having a child, no matter what it is, that, that grief always, always comes up. What was, yep. what was your journey like? I know you mentioned you did some miscarriages, you did IVF, you know, there are some things now you went to therapy a little bit. Talk to us a little bit about your journey and, and dealing with the miscarriage and the IVF. What were some things that worked for you? What were some things that didn't work, wish you had done? done better yeah oh man um well i mean we kind of had we had losses all over the map so um most of them were early losses you know less than there were six to eight weeks or, or less um you know the first one i remember it was just so you've never kind of you've never gone through it and so it just kind of hits you out of the blue but you're young and you're hopeful and optimistic so that one, I, I, I really didn't, it hurt, it stung, but I didn't think too much on it. Um, but then you get to, you get to some of the other one and it keeps happening and all that you just little by little, you start losing hope. And then we had a kid, um, you know, we had our first in 2008 
And that was amazing. And I thought, gee, we're over the hump now. But then, you know, you have two or three more after that. And one of those was a a second trimester loss. You know, I think it was 17 weeks. So, and, you know, we had, we had gotten the all clear at 12 weeks and we had announced and we had told friends and family. And I think it was, it might've been like 24 hours after we told people, we got a call from the radiologist saying, Hey, um, we don't know exactly what's going on, but we did notice something in the, in the ultrasound that we didn't see before. So can you come back in? And of course, you know, we came back in. And sure enough, it was siren Amelia, which is mermaid syndrome, hmm. where the legs fuse together and there's no, you know, no kidney, no bladder, no, you know, whole bunch of body parts that you need to live. Um, and we were told, you know, we went to the best doctors in Boston um, and they said, look, this is really rare. It's one in 100,000 chance. Um, it's not something that we see often, but there's no, there's no chance at viability here so that one was um that was exceptionally tough on top of all the other losses that we had because we really thought we were in the clear and we had both um you know gotten uncrossed our fingers and you know gotten our hopes up and really started thinking about it and then to have that happen you know we and to make it worse we were given a choice you know they said we can get you into the hospital in two weeks but at that point you're 50 50 on whether you have to actually deliver or you can go to an affiliated clinic and you know have a termination and so you know my wife ultimately chose to you know go to the clinic and we were accosted by even in you know blue Massachusetts we were accosted by anti-choice sidewalk protesters who were just you know that's some of the the cruelest treatment I think anyone can really endure is on the worst day of your life when you've had all that loss and now it's compounded by strangers who have no idea your story or your background or the fact that you want this baby um, screaming at you and, and calling you all these names. And you asked what worked, Um, you know, that, that was probably one of the worst days of my life, but looking back um, it, it was actually a real turning point for me because I, I was struggling to find any kind of meaning or any kind of redemption in, in anything, even though we had a kid and I was very much feeling grateful for, for the one we had, I, you know, you can't help, but, but be hurt by all this loss. And when that happened, I was a newspaper reporter at the time. So I was, you know, very aware of my rights and what I couldn't, couldn't do. And obviously you can't go into surgery when someone's having that procedure. So I went back outside. This is 2010. It was the first cell phone I had that took video. Um, and I, I recorded myself peacefully and nonviolently, but firmly um, questioning these these protesters and what they were doing. And that um, that video went viral to the tune of, you know, a million plus hits. Wow. Uh, but more more important than that. The the comments and the emails that I got from random people all over the world. Um, you know, some, some would say, Hey, 50 years ago, I went in for an abortion and, um, I didn't have anyone to help me with, you know, feel better about these, these people harassing me. Thank you. And these other women that shared their stories of loss and even men who said, you know, God, I, I've been in that spot. I escorted my wife through there. All of a sudden I found 
a little bit of purpose. Like we put it out there. My wife actually wrote something at the time. I started writing about our experiences and it, it, we heard from so many people that all of a sudden, at least a tiny little bit of this whole process started to make a, a little more sense to me because it was helping other people. Um, and that was important to me. And that really, I turned a corner that day and I really started writing more about these issues and uh, opening up about pregnancy and, you know, being a dad and being an expectant dad. And it kind of opened the floodgates for me and led to some great opportunities writing in time and HuffPost and Washington Post and a whole other bunch of places. So for me anyway, I needed to find the, any kind of good, any kind of silver lining, any kind of way that I could turn it around and feel like I was making a difference or helping people. That was what worked for me. Um, it was not going to a group. Um, I, I did get help. You know, I was helped immensely by the group of dads who I talked to online. That kind of community was really helpful, but I wasn't one to go into a, like a face-to-face group setting. Although one person in my book did, did do that and actually ended up leading those groups, which is, you know, great for him. Um, but I wish, you know, yes, what I wish I had done different. I wish I had been able, everything I was writing to a general public, I wish that I had had the guts to talk about all that with my wife because I didn't at the time for whatever reason, probably stupid male, stubborn pride. Um, you know, I, 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 in a way I was writing all that to my wife because it was all the stuff that I couldn't say directly to her. And I know that sounds insane to say to, well, you, you published it and, you know, sent it to a million people. How come you couldn't talk to your wife? I don't, I don't really know. I mean, it's a big difference, like hitting send on a, on a, on a blog post and having to go face to face to your wife and tell her that, you know, cause she's hurting, right. She's hurting big time. And now you have to tell her, Hey, I know I'm supposed to be a rock, but you know, I'm hurting too. It's just, um, it's a really tall task, but I, I wish I had done it earlier because when you don't communicate, everything just starts to crumble and erode slowly. And that will hurt you much more in the long run. It really will. So I was hesitant to go to counseling and therapy um, eventually I did. And it was, you know, I still go, it's one of the best things I could do. And as soon as I learned, as soon as I got it through my thick head, that asking for help was not a sign of weakness. It, you know, for men, it's a sign of strength and we're not, we're not trained to see it that way. We're not, we're in fact, the opposite is true. We're trained to see it as, you know, Oh, stop being a Sally. You can't handle your own problems. Well, no, you know, sometimes we, we all need help handling our problems and trying to be the best man and and father and husband that you can be i mean that's the epitome of strength there's nothing weak about that that's that's what a strong person should be doing because we all need help sometimes so i would say communicate find your community find any kind of silver lining you can and just please talk to your partner please cuz that's a number 1 what you were saying is so, so powerful. First off, I can't even imagine what it would have been like walking into that clinic and having protests right in front of me. I mean, you would think people would just, I get where they're coming from. There's pro-life, the anti-abortion, but still, you have no idea what a person is going through walking into that clinic. I mean, that's that, that I can't even imagine how traumatizing that, that would have been, but you are 100% right. 
talk to your partners about this because if you boil it up inside, it just, you just hold on to it and hold on. So I was talking to someone, you know, the other day on this podcast and he told me, I boiled up inside of me so much. I couldn't communicate with my partner, my spouse. I turned to alcohol and I, we just couldn't even, couldn't even communicate. I mean, the more you talk to your partner, the more you find the outlets, the more help you will be giving yourself, the better spouse you'll become, the better you'll be able to communicate, the more, the more powerful the experience, you know, it will be, and it will help you in the long run. And unfortunately, you know, the book does have a decent amount of those stories from the people we interviewed. You know, one, one guy said he, you know, she, after, after um, the DNC, she sent him out for, I think, some medication or something. And, you know, he got the medication and then he was just, he was feeling it and he didn't know how to deal with it. So he stopped at a bar and he had a drink and then a few more drinks. And then next thing you know, he's, you know, cars on the lawn and he's thrown up in the bushes as his, you know, hurting wife comes out and says, what the hell is wrong with you? And that's, that's a low point, you know, and it, it, I, you know, they were not together anymore. There's, you know, miscarriage, infertility, that's, it's, it's ended relationships, many relationships, because it's, it's tough to deal with. So you got to get out in front of that or else it'll tear you apart. Yes, you do. It is really unfortunate how these life occurrences can either tear you apart or bring you closer together. I've heard many stories of tearing apart couples, but also at the same time, it brings you so close together and makes you a stronger couple because these life occurrences, if you communicate and you talk to one another and you get through it, it brings you so close. Yep, battle tested. Absolutely. In regards to going through the procedure, do you hope in the future that the the clinics, the hospitals will allow you into the procedure? And like one of the hardest things for me especially through the fertility and the miscarriage is when my wife was going through, through the process, I wasn't allowed in the room. No one ever asked me how, how I'm doing. I wasn't allowed to really be there when she's going through this. I was told to step aside and you'll see her in recovery. Do you hope that the hospitals would allow us to scrub in? Yeah, it's an interesting question. It's not something anyone's ever asked me before and I'm not I'm not a health you know I'm not a health professional I have no idea how onerous it is to have somebody who's not involved in the surgery in there I mean would I have gone if they had offered me that of course I would have um you know I I would want to be near her the entire time just for comfort and reassurance um but you know it at the same time, if, and I'm not a, I'm not a surgeon or a doctor, but if, if a presence like that is going to be a distraction or a hindrance, then, you know, I guess I can understand it. And I don't want, I certainly don't want to be the cause of um, a doctor slipping up or being uncomfortable. I want them to do their jobs as much as they want. So I don't know. I, I can, I can see both sides, but I will tell you if offered, yeah, I would have gone in. Absolutely. What else would you have liked to done differently or advice aside from the communication you know, on the fertility side, on the miscarriage side, you know, having one and then leading to another miscarriage, unfortunately, 
what did you learn from the first to the second, you know, to the third? Are there things that you learned from each one that? You know, I think I learned that each, each one is different. And honestly, each, I'd say each reaction that I had anyway was different. And the way we handled each one was different. So for instance, um, you know, I think you kind of live, learn and evolve from these things. Um, I'm somebody who likes to share good news immediately. Right. So as soon as we found out we were pregnant the first time, I told everyone like positive test, boom, next day we were like, we're pregnant. We'll tell anyone who will listen, strangers on the street, anybody. Um, and with social media, this it kind of adds another, a whole other layer on there because now you're not just telling your mom or your dad or you're, you're telling your entire network of, of friends and acquaintances. Um, I will say, you know, the, the second and third, fourth time that we went through this, uh, that changed a little bit. We kept it, we played it close to the vest. We waited to announce because um, we were afraid. We were waiting for the other shoe to drop. But by the, by the fifth, by the, by the last one, I had kind of come full circle um, on this and I'd realized, you know what? Good news is good news whenever it is. And think, yeah, of course things could go wrong, but if I'm, if I'm just, if I'm not telling anybody, then, you know, I'm not telling them the good news and, you know, maybe I'm saving them disappointment, but I'm also going through that disappointment alone because I haven't told anyone. So for me, and everyone's going to be different on this, but for me, you know, I, I, I chose to celebrate good news when I could, because it was still a joyous moment. And that way, you know, the people who could help me would help me if, if something did happen. Um, so, you know, little things like that, you just, you learn that nothing is uniform and the way you felt one time doesn't have to be the way you felt the next time. Um, all, all feelings of grief really are valid. And, you know, I think this book is important for, men obviously but also for women because at least in heterosexual relationships i think a lot of women look at men and see you know they think oh my god why isn't he grieving why isn't he crying why isn't he as upset as i am right now and you know they they probably don't realize number 1 they almost certainly are grieving um number 2 they're just we're told to be strong you know, societally, we're expected to be strong, silent, and deal with our own stuff and not show emotion. So a lot of guys, myself included, we just kind of reverted back to what we knew when things got tough. And, you know, that that's a big mistake, because what does that do? It's, you know, your your wife's going through all this stuff. She wants to know that she's got a partner who's as invested as she is, and who's as upset and hurt as she is and what she sees is a rock, you know, and that's a rock is a, an inanimate object. It's not something you really want to be at that time. And, you know, my wife in the book, she said she would have felt much better if I had just explained where I was coming from so that she didn't think she was married to a robot who just was suppressing all his feelings or didn't have feelings about it. Um, so that's, that, you know, I, I know toxic masculinity is a buzzword that a lot of people don't like, but it really does touch on so many things, um, especially with how men 
deal with things. There was one woman we interviewed who tragically lost her baby at, I think, 37 weeks. And, you know, the, she just, she was a mess, obviously. And he was too, but he wouldn't admit it. And he did all the busy work, all the planning, uh, you know, the funeral arrangements, the, and any, anything to plan, anything to set in order and to do, like, it's a to-do list, boom, I can do this. But then, you know, he struggled really when, when all of those chores were done, when all those tasks were over, now you're left with your thoughts and you're left with your feelings and you don't have that to-do list. And it is a struggle, but you gotta know, guys, I mean, it's, it's okay to struggle. That struggle, that feeling is deserved and it's normal and you should be free to, you know, harness your full range of emotions. We're not just stuck with, with anger and uh, resentment and things like that. You know, we feel the same things everyone else feels and we just have to allow ourselves to feel it. Yeah. What you're saying is so, so true. We are grieving from it. We go through all the five stages of grief, all the planning, every step of the way, the excitement, the triumph after telling people about it. And then, you know, boom, something happens. We are a hundred percent grieving. And it's really, really incredible that you wrote this book and shared these stories because you're right. Women often don't realize that the men are grieving and they're grieving in their own individual ways and really need those, those outlets. And for you, I mean, writing obviously really, really helped, you know, sharing the story on social media and yeah. writing this book. It really, Words cannot describe how how grateful I am for the fact that you wrote this book because these stories need to be out there. People need to understand how men relate to it. Yeah, thank thank you. And it's, you know, reliving this stuff's not fun, especially, you know, we've talked a lot about miscarriage, but I think, honestly, the, the male infertility diagnosis was probably the hardest part for me because my wife's got a lot of medical problems. So when we couldn't, stay pregnant uh i mean i think we both just kind of assumed it was her as you know it was attached to one of her many medical conditions but then you know when they brought me in for um you know for examination and told me that you know motility was bad and you know uh, the sperm were you know amorphous i was just like what i'm like no no you get the wrong person i'm like it's it's her over here and that was, uh, that opened up a whole other can of worms because, you know, she looked at me and she's like, what you just, she's like, so it's okay if, if something's wrong with me, but if something's wrong with you, then that's a problem. And, and, you know, she's not wrong, but I mean, I had a terrible, terrible toxic reaction to hearing that news. I mean, when they told me when, you know, when, when a guy hears that there's something wrong with his sperm, I mean, that's, um, that's literally a shot to the manhood. And I asked my wife in the doctor's office, I said, well, I said, is my first son even mine then? You know, if, if my sperm, you know, that's, that's not a question. You, that's I idiot. I'm an idiot. And, but that's what happens. Like it, that shot to the pride, it, it makes you a moron and it makes you just lash out and say these awful things. And that, that hit me. That was probably the lowest point, you know, cause that's your, that's your biological imperative, right? To spread your seed from a caveman point of view. And all of a sudden I was told by a doctor that 
that there was something wrong with, with my ability to do that. And it just devastated me. It, it, it shattered me. And it took a long, long time to go to a counselor. And I, in the book, my wife details the fact that I was actually tricked into going to a counselor <laughs> just to get me in the room. She told me it was for her that her counselor wanted me to, to, um, you know, kind of corroborate everything that's been going on with her. But really it was just a ploy to get me in there and get me used to being in that room with a counselor to see what it was like. So I don't always recommend lying to your spouse um, about things like this, but in this case, she did me a huge favor because it, it got me comfortable with the idea of going to a counselor and a therapist. And that's one of the better decisions that I've made recently. So just, you know, hang in there, guys. It, it, I, I can't tell you that it's not going to be tough and that you're not going to feel like crap when you get that diagnosis because you will, but just know that there's a whole lot of other people going through that and that it doesn't, it does not mean you're less of a man and there is help. They can, there's lots of things that can be done and great doctors out there. I know it's not, Oh, you know, we got really, even, even through five losses, I consider myself very, very lucky to have three healthy kids. Um, one, only one needed IVF. So, I mean, a lot of people don't get there. So for that, I'm grateful, but man, it's a struggle. It is a, it is a long, long, expensive, awful road to get there. And anyone who travels it, that's a, that's a club you don't necessarily want to be in, but the people who are in it are great to each other. It is. It's a club you don't want to be in, that's for sure. But when you are in it, just know there are resources out there for you. There are mm -hmm. books, especially the one that Aaron wrote. And there's a community online. There's podcasts. There's, you know, local meetups in your communities. There's retreats. There's so much out there for you. And guys, seriously, don't be afraid to ask for help and to connect with one another because your voice, your voice is the most powerful thing that you have. And if yeah. you don't use it and you just suffer in silence, it boils down and it'll break you down. Yeah. Even like Chris Whitfield on LinkedIn has the miscarriage for men site that, that he's got going. I checked that out. It's a great resource. There are local groups, like you said, all around, just, you know, Google it and you'll find something. And if not jump online, I mean, there's bereavement and infant loss and pregnancy and infertility um, groups all over the place. And you might have to try a few of them. I mean, some I remember going into and immediately going, Nope, not for me. Like this is not, <laughs> not where I want to be, but you know, you just got to try some things out and be open to, to different people and experiences and you will eventually find your people and they will help carry you through this because without people, man, it's, it's an even tougher road. It is. People are key, especially, you know, you were talking about numbers. The statistics don't lie. One in four pregnancies end in a miscarriage. One in eight couples struggle with infertility. One in 160 births end in a stillbirth and one in a thousand babies die of SIDS. I mean, those are, those are real numbers. So the person to your left, the person to your right could have also gone through it. So don't be afraid. Don't be ashamed to talk to the person next to you. Hey, you know, I went through this. Did you, do you know someone who went through it? Like you, you gotta open communication is so, so important. Yeah. And I know we, this is a subject that, 
I mean, women talk more than men. I think that, you know, I don't think that's sexist to say. I think that's pretty much proven at this point that women tend to be better communicators and communicate more freely. But with this topic, even even this gets swept under the rug a little bit. No one wants to talk about it until, you know, my wife used to tell me like she somebody would say, hey, you know, I've had two also. And like it's this dirty little secret that's only just recently starting to be talked about in, in the light of day. And, and I think we need more of that for women, for men. Everybody's going to benefit when we can, you know, sunlight's the best disinfectant. Let's, let's get it out there and talk about it so we can reduce the shame and stigma associated with it. How would you go about, especially since you wrote the book, and that's one of the things that, you know, you're hoping to change, how would you go about suggesting that we end the stigma? that more men talk about it. Like how, how, how do we change this stigma in society that men, yes, we're strong, we're silent. How do we change that? You know, for, for better or for worse, right? Um, I think a lot, a not insignificant number of people look to celebrities and influencers and high profile people with large platforms. Um, and some of them share this stuff. You know, and, and I'm thankful to the ones who do, you know, J- John Legend went, went through this, um, you know, football players, there are a lot of athletes are sharing this now, um, hearing their stories and see, you know, these are, these are big, tough guys who are pro athletes in, in whatever sport they play. And here they are talking about, you know, being vulnerable and the, the heartbreak that they feel losing a pregnancy going through a miscarriage, you know, some are missing games to do it. And, and, you know, I, we hear a lot of like, Oh, you know, spoiled athletes and all this stuff, but let's face it. You know, those people have the platform and they have the reach, they have the virtual bullhorn. And whenever a celebrity like that shares their story, I really think there's value in that because people start, you know, people start to open up. It opens up broader conversations, you know, a celebrity shares something, then people write about it. And, you know, then it, it's in the news and we, we need more of that. And, and I know it's not fair or right to have everybody, you know, who goes through this talk about it publicly because some people just don't want to, and that's okay too. But the people who do share it, I think provide a lot of value and support to members of the public who are going through this maybe silently and think they're alone. It's, it's important to see that kind of representation. 1000% is and I'm really really grateful for the fact that men are starting to especially as athletes I mean I follow football a lot I'm seeing player after player after player now coming I missed a season because of it I I suffered a loss I wear it on my cleats you know I I mean it's just the awareness is, is, is getting out there men are not suffering in silence anymore and this is this is changing for the good yeah, and it, it's it's a weird time to do it. It's, if you put it this way, it's a very odd time for a white straight guy like me to write a book about miscarriage. And and I tried to be very cognizant of that, right? Because, I mean, it's not happening to my body. Um, I'm not carrying the baby. So I'm not saying that men have a tougher time with miscarriage. In fact, I think it's very safe to say that, you know, women have more to bear um, with miscarriage. It's not a controversial statement, but 
I wanted to make, I, that's why I wanted my wife uh, to write this book with me because in no way did I want to like center myself as a, as a guy on a, on an issue that happens to women's bodies. But at the same time, you know, I, I talked to enough people where I just, I knew for a fact that there are many, many men who just feel lost. You know, should I grieve? Am I allowed to grieve? Like, am I allowed to feel this way? And the answer is yes. And and I think men and women benefit from that conversation. I don't think this is just for men. I think, I think everyone is going to benefit when men start opening up about this. 1000%. So where can people get a copy of your book? It's on Amazon. Yeah. I mean, Amazon, IndieBound, um, if you don't want to go the Amazon route. It's called Men and Miscarriages. It's also in a lot of the Barnes and Noble stores. So you can search on there too. But yeah, really, you know, most bookstores and then uh, certainly Amazon and IndieBound is, I think, are the best bets. But it came out in the summer. Um, like I said, you know, I, this was a book I knew wasn't going to find a ton of mainstream, mainstream success. But I wrote it because I think the people who do find it are the ones who are going to need it. And I think that's a valuable thing to have, even if it goes out to a, a limited number of people. So I hope the people who do find it get something out of it. And again, thank you with all my heart to the, to the nine people who shared their stories with us, because that's, um, that's huge. It's absolutely huge. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Matt. And thank you so much, Aaron. Really, really, really appreciate you coming onto the show, sharing stories, talking about your book and your personal experiences, you know, to all the men out there, get a copy of, of Aaron's book. It'll help you through it. And please, 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 please do not suffer in silence. Share your stories. Get help if you need it. We are here for you. We're able to help you. Reach out to us. You know, we don't want you suffering alone. And you really shouldn't suffer alone. <laughs> yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you for continuing this conversation. It's an important one. My pleasure. You've just listened to another great episode of Men Talk with Daniel Landau. If you've suffered from miscarriage, infertility, stillbirth, or infant loss and want to open up about it, reach out. We'd love to have you on the show. You can also join our Facebook group, or if you'd like to get involved and start a chapter in your neighborhood, visit our website, www.menshelpline.org today. Until next week, stay strong, and remember, you're not alone.